All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. There are so many issues and questions in life that we don't really have much of a clue to, and it is only through your word that we have insight and light upon the various problems and difficulties and heartaches of life. We know that only through your word and dependence upon your grace and your power are we enabled to live life with joy and happiness and hope in the midst of distressing, discouraging, and often overwhelming circumstances. And it is because we have life, real life, life eternal that has been given to us by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith, we have been given new life in him. And the issue now is what we're going to do with that new life. Are we going to live uh, live for you, live in fulfillment of your plan for our lives so that we can realize all that you have provided for us? Or are we going to live simply on the basis of our own limited knowledge Uh, living for our own personal goals and personal desires? Are we going to focus upon uh, what you have given us and recognize that we have an eternal commission that has been given by the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of making disciples, serving one another, and serving you in the local church? Father, as we study your word today, may we come to a greater understanding of your grace and your love for us as well as the security that we have in our eternal salvation We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to begin with the last couple of verses that I looked at last week as we were wrapping up those first 14 verses, which uh, focused upon these two challenges to Jesus related to uh, his work on the Sabbath. This morning we get into one of those probably eight or ten difficult passages in the New Testament. That is, a lot of people read them and read things into this passage and some of these other passages, and so they come away with a lot of questions. This lesson is one of those that people often come up with. It focuses on the unforgivable sin. Is it possible to commit an unforgivable sin that somehow... Uh, negates my salvation or prevents me from ever being saved. Many people get concerned about this. They wonder if somehow they might have committed the unforgivable sin. You'd be amazed at some of the theologians, some of the pastors, some of the people who uh, have gained prominence over the years, who for a time in their spiritual life were obsessed about the fact that they had committed the unforgivable sin. 
People often wonder if somehow in their life, if they have become angry with God, if they have screamed at God, if they have accused God of, of ignoring them or not answering their prayers or, or not caring about them, that if they have somehow committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Among Christians, there are a number of different views related to the meaning of this passage. Some believe that the unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus as their Savior, that if they don't believe in Jesus as their Savior, then they've committed this unforgivable sin, that, uh, that, that the sin of unbelief is the one sin that is not forgiven. But then the issue is, or one of the issues is, how many times are you allowed to express unbelief? The first time you hear the gospel? Second time you hear the gospel, the fifteenth time you hear the gospel, how many times uh, do you have? How many chances do you have? Others believe that uh, this is some sin that you can commit after salvation, that is, after you receive eternal life and you're born again, and if you commit this sin, then poof, it's gone. You've lost your salvation never to recover it again. Others believe that this is not... Uh, a sin that we can commit today, but that this is a sin that was unique and distinct to this period of time. It is uniquely a sin in relationship to the messianic claims of Jesus during the first advent, and therefore it could not be committed by any other generation. Still, others believe that this was not an individual sin at all, but that it was a national sin that was exhibited by the national leadership of Israel, and that therefore this sin not only could only have been committed by that generation, but that it is specifically related to God's plan for Israel, the offer of the kingdom to Israel at that particular time, and is specifically related to the the Jewish acceptance or rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. What we'll see this morning as we go through this passage is that once we understand the context, clarify a number of things, that it will be very clear what this passage means. And the last option that I mentioned is really the correct understanding of this particular passage. So we're going to address these issues. What is the unforgivable sin? Have I committed it? And can this be committed today? And why we know that this is not something that any of us need to be concerned about. As we look at this part of Matthew, as I pointed out last time, Matthew 12 is the pivot chapter and describes the pivot event in the life of Christ. It's the pivot chapter of Matthew and describes this pivot event in the life of Christ. As we look at the so-called synoptic Gospels, those are the three Gospels that basically cover the life of Christ chronologically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John looks at it differently. John sort of has a bird's-eye view looking down from heaven uh, as it were, at the life of Christ. He organizes his material differently, but you have roughly a chronological um, chronological uh, arrangement in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, although within that broad chronology, they shift things around as they're expressing their particular uh, argument. So usually the life of Christ is understood to begin with this period of time where Jesus comes on the scene. He offers the as the king of Israel, as the messianic king, he offers the kingdom. 
then uh, that seems to be welcomed at first, and there is uh, are increasing crowds that come to him. Uh, he's also feeding them. He's also healing them. So many of them are coming for the perks. They're not coming for the uh, the the repentance that is related to uh, the coming of the kingdom. This builds to a point eventually where it comes into conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, and they officially reject Jesus as the Messiah. As representatives of the nation, they reject him. Let me draw a parallel. We elect representatives and senators and a president. The decisions they make are our decisions, whether we like it or not. Uh, if we are, if our government enters into a an agreement with Iran over these their nuclear capability, that becomes our decision, whether we like it or not. The same was true in Israel. The decision of the of the leadership. It reflects the views of the people. And as we've seen, not only are the leaders hostile to Jesus, but there's been an increasing rejection of his messianic claims by the people. In chapter 11, he uh, announced a judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, saying that if the miracles that were done in their midst had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago. And so there is a, uh, a rejection, uh, an increasing rejection, not only by the people, but also by uh, the, the, the leadership. So we have the uh, crucifixion. Then there's a period after that, after the rejection of the training of the Twelve uh, for the church age. There's a definite shift in focus that takes place after this pivot event. Before this event takes place, uh, Jesus' ministry is restricted to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. After this, he goes to the Gentiles. As we see in the passage that I read in verse 18, he's uh, quoting from Isaiah. He says he will declare justice to the Gentiles. In verse 21, in the, still quoting from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, in his name Gentiles will trust. Clearly there's a shift from Israel, a focus to Israel to a focus on the Gentiles. Prior to this rejection, he preached a gospel to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. After this, the kingdom is no longer offered. Uh, Before this, um, he performed miracles publicly. After this, they are only done in private. Before this, he taught openly to the masses in public. But after this, he teaches parables He cloaks what he is teaching in parables, teaching the disciples as he prepares them for their future ministry as leaders uh, in the church age. So this is the pivot chapter in the book of Matthew, and the context is clearly a shift from the offer to the Jews to to the uh, taking the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. We see the foreshadowing of this from prophecy in the Old Testament, which talks about how false teachers will come into Israel, and they will lead the people astray, and that God says that he himself will come and will rescue his sheep and will deliver them. Ezekiel 34, 9, God says, uh, or Jeremiah, excuse me, Ezekiel says, Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. These are false shepherds. And I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. 
For I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. What a great messianic prophecy. God will enter into human history in order to deliver his sheep. He goes on to say in verse 16, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So this forms a prophetic backdrop to what is happening in this passage. Jesus is indeed uh, binding up the broken, strengthening what was sick. He is going to heal this uh, demon-possessed man uh, in order to demonstrate his power and his credentials to the Pharisees, and they will reject him. And this is the final straw of rejection that will bring about God's judgment upon them. Now, what we see here is that throughout these uh, previous passages, Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus has claimed to be God. Jesus has claimed to be the sole authority for knowing God and the sole authority for correctly interpreting the Mosaic law. The Pharisees have been his chief opponents Uh, They reject him as the Messiah, and eventually, because of that, they will condemn him to the cross. And uh, and what Jesus does, since he's offered the gospel to Israel, they've rejected him as the Messiah, is then he will take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And this uh, develops into what will be the church. Now, the church doesn't come into existence until the day of Pentecost, Uh, 50 days after the crucifixion, and at that point uh, we have the birth of this new entity, the church, and eventually there will be a restoration of, of Israel. So what we've seen, what we saw last time, is that after Jesus uh, performed the miracle of the healing the withered hand, and remember that had overtones from the a miracle in the Old Testament involving Jeroboam I, who was leading the northern kingdom into apostasy, and he was challenged by a man of God, an unnamed prophet who went to him and announced judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. When that prophet announced that judgment, Jeroboam pointed at him, and when he did so, he was going to announce uh, uh, to his guards to arrest this this uh, uh, prophet. When he did that, his hand immediately withered. So he cried out to the man of God to heal his hand. The man of God healed his hand, and this, but this healing of the withered hand is connected to the announcement of divine judgment on the nation that God would take them out of the land as he had promised in Leviticus chapter uh, 26. And so uh, as as the Pharisees reject Jesus, they go out now to plot against him. Uh, The people have been uh, amazed at the miracles that Jesus has performed. The miracles indicate, as this one does, that he that that he's announcing judgment upon them, and so they go out. They're angry, as Luke says, they are filled with rage, and so they go out to plot and conspire against him, how they might destroy him. And the verb here is the verb apolumi. And apolumi is related to, is the same word used as perish, eternal perishing in John chapter 3 verse 16. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Context indicates that's eternal perishing. 
Here, it refers to death. The word apolumi often refers to killing someone or taking their life. In Matthew 2.13, Herod sought to destroy the infant Jesus. It meant to kill him. In Matthew 27.20, it's used to describe the death of Christ. Other passages that use the word to refer to killing someone are Mark 3.6 and Mark 9.22, 11.18, and Luke 6.9. Now, when Jesus realizes that they have uh, they, they are conspiring against him. It's not time yet. So Je- this happens several times. Jesus is going to withdraw so that he is not at the center of attention for the time being, uh, so that he can bide his time until the correct time in fulfillment of prophecy, uh, uh, according to the Old Testament, when he would be uh, crucified. So in M- Matthew 12:15, we see Jesus' response. He withdraws. The people follow him, and he continues in grace. He heals them all, and this shows his 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 uh, his ministry at this particular time. But then, in the next verse, in the next verse, in verse sixteen, he warns them not to make him known. Now, this is this is really ought to catch our attention because throughout this initial part of his ministry, he's been sending out the disciples to the house of Israel and the house of Judah to make him known, to challenge them with the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he says, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody. Part of the reason he does that is he doesn't want to exacerbate the hostility anymore because he doesn't want them to uh, jump the gun and arrest him and kill him too soon. So he's holding off. He is, he is as it were, just backing off to cause uh, a, a reduction in the intensity of the opposition for the time being. And then... At that point, when he warns them not to make him known, Matthew says something very interesting in verse 17. He says, That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. See, he says, Don't make me known. And and Matthew says the reason he wanted them to keep their mouths shut was because of a situation that is forecast, that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And we have this quotation. Now, this quotation doesn't match your, probably doesn't match your English, because your English translation is based on the Hebrew, and the trans, the, uh, the quote in the Greek New Testament is really based on the translation from the, uh, from the Septuagint, although there are some some uh, different uh, problems with that. One thing we note about this is this is the longest of Matthew's quotations from the Old Testament. He quotes more from the Old Testament than any other gospel writer, and this is his longest quotation. That means something significant is being said here. Uh, second thing that's interesting is in the Septuagint translation, which begins, my, which in the Hebrew it says, my servant, in the Septuagint translation, it translated the word servant with uh, not with a word like diakonos, which would mean servant, uh, or another word that means servant, but it, with the word pais, P-A-I-S, which is the word for child or son. And so as Matthew uh, uh, quotes from the, from the Old Testament, there's an indication here 
that this is my son or my child. So he's talking, uh, there's a clear understanding from the translators of the Septuagint that the suffering servant was also the child of God. This is something that not too many people uh, bring out or point out. So in this quote we read, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now what's the point contextually of this quote? What's the main idea of this whole section going down to verse 32? the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what we see in this quotation is the introduction of two critical ideas at this juncture in the life of Christ. One has to do with bringing in the central role of the Spirit of God in the ministry of the Messiah, according to this particular quote in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. The second key idea that comes out of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, is that that the ministry of the servant of God is going to not only be to Israel, but also be to the Gentiles. And this is what is going to happen with this, this shift that occurs here at this pivot point, is that Jesus will begin to take his ministry uh, to the Gentiles. And so these are the two main ideas in this section, talking about that God's Spirit is upon uh, his servant, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. And that is because verses 19 and 20 indicate that he is not being uh, responded to by uh, his original audience. No one is hearing his voice in the streets, and so he goes to the Gentiles. And the conclusion will be in verse 21, uh, in him the Gentiles will trust. Now this was also foreshadowed by a prophecy I pointed out last week by Moses in Deuteronomy 32.21 that when the Israel provokes God to jealousy, then he will, uh, he will go to another nation I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation, that is the Gentiles, and I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. So this is what Moses says to the uh, conquest generation just before they go into the land and just before he goes up to Mount Nebo and he uh, dies on Mount Nebo. So this will introduce to us then the final straw of Israel's disobedience to God. And so Jesus is about to announce the, ir- the irrevocable judgment of God upon Israel because they have rejected him as the Messiah. He is administering the coup de grace to the nation Israel at this point. Now, the coup de grace is a death blow. It comes from a French term that would uh, describe the fact that when there was a firing squad afterward, uh, the officer in charge of the firing squad would come up and put a bullet into the brain of the person being executed to make sure that he was dead. It is a final act that uh, brings death to the uh, to the victim. And so this is what is being announced here is a judgment, just as a criminal goes before a court of law and is found guilty by the judge, then a sentence is announced, and then sometime later that sentence is carried out. And what happens here is Jesus is announcing a sentence uh, that's irrevocable on the nation. It's not individual. He's not talking about individual loss of salvation, eternal life. Neither is he talking about the inability 
uh, of some of them to uh, have eternal life because we know from the book of Acts that there were large numbers of priests and Pharisees who, after the resurrection and ascension, accepted Jesus as their Messiah. We know that that uh, so this is not applied to them in terms of personal justification and eternal life. It is a pronouncement of judgment on on the nation. Let me show you uh, some uh, background for this from the Old Testament. This is extremely important. The sin that's committed here is called what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is to revile God. Blasphemy is to treat God lightly. Blasphemy means to... Um, uh, blasphemy means to disrespect God. Blasphemy means to use his name in a, a, a wrong manner and to, uh, and, and to belittle God, to disobey God, to reject God. All of these ideas are part of the idea of blasphemy. Many people limit their idea of blasphemy to using God's name in vain, which isn't what that passage means is at all. It means to treat God's name his name Shem, uh, Jews often refer to God as Hashem, the God of the name, rather than pronounce his name, because they believe that if you pronounce the name of God, Yahweh, that that is a sign of disrespect for God, and that is blasphemy. So blasphemy means this very thing, uh, to treat God lightly, and blasphemy is a, a word that summarizes the disobedience of Israel in the Old Testament for which they were taken out of the land in the northern kingdom in 722 uh, B.C. and in the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. Blasphemy was considered a willful sin. A willful sin is also known as the sin of the high hand. And for a willful sin, there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, and with other other uh, offerings, if you sinned, you were ritually unclean. You had to come to the tabernacle or the temple, and you had to offer a sacrifice, and you would be ritually cleansed. But there were some sins, the willful sins, the sins of the high hand, for which there was no offering. Now, that doesn't mean those people could not be eternally saved. It meant that they could not, there was no offering that would cleanse them of their sin. There was a judgment in time, not eternity, but a judgment in time that would be brought to bear upon them. Uh, blasphemy uh, brought about the death penalty, murder, adultery. Some of these were the sin, also sins of the high hand. Now, in Isaiah 5.24, we read, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and the flame consumes the shaft, so their root will be as rottenness. This is the indictment of God against the southern kingdom of Israel for their spiritual rebellion. Their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the what? The law of Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of the armies, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised. And the word there is one of several words used for blasphemy in the Old Testament. It is na'atz, and it refer, it means to blaspheme, to revile. Sometimes it's translated reject or despise, but this is blasphemy. They rejected the word, uh, the, 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 uh, despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now, interesting, in Hebrew, 
the word, the Hebrew word translated word is memra. And memra is a, is a Hebrew word that speaks of the, of the word of God and would be the Hebrew equivalent of what Greek word do you suspect that might be? Lagos, that's exactly right. And so this is a reference that's picked up by John later on. And in, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the memra in Old Testament theology is the expression of God, the spoken Word of God, the revelation of God, and this is connected biblically to the Messiah. And so they have rejected, they have despised, they have uh, reviled, blasphemed the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 52.5 picks up this same indictment. Uh, now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. So as we look at the Old Testament, and this is, I tried to change this up a little bit, put all these words up here. These are uh, five different words that are used in Hebrew that are variously translated uh, with synonyms of, of blaspheme. The first word, nakav, means to blaspheme or to curse, used in Job 3.8, Proverbs 11.26, and Leviticus 24.11-16. Uh, uh, Leviticus 24:11 and following also uses the next word kalal, which means to curse, to treat, or esteem lightly, to make something contemptible, to belittle, to deprive someone of their stature and importance. It's used of the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 3:13 as they are abusing their uh, role as uh, priests at the tabernacle. So nakav means to blaspheme and curse. The central passage where that word is used is in Leviticus 24:11 and following, which is a central passage on blasphemy in the Old Testament. The third word is gadaf, which also means to blaspheme, to revile, or to insult. It's used in 2 Kings 19:6 and 22, and Isaiah 37:6 and 23. The third word is an important word as well, naatz. That's the word that was used in Isaiah 5.24, which I mentioned a minute ago. And it means to treat someone with disrespect, to despise them, to blaspheme, to provoke them to anger. Uh, it means also to reject, to revile, or to spurn. And a central passage where it's used is in Numbers 14.11, which we'll look at in a minute, as well as the other passages listed on the screen. These are all related to circumstances in Israel where the Israelites rejected God and rebelled against against him. Uh, the last word, the fifth word on the screen is halal, which again means to profane something, to defile it, to pollute it, or to desecrate it. And so the priests are warned by God in Leviticus 18 through chapter 22 not to profane God's name, uh, various examples of ways in which they profane God's name is they would offer their children to Moloch as burnt offerings in Leviticus 18.21 and Leviticus 20 verse 3. Falsely swearing by God's name is mentioned in Leviticus 19.12. Violating the code of conduct for the priests in Leviticus 21.6 would be profaning the name of God. 
are eating the holy things, the showbread and the ark of the, I mean, in the uh, holy of holies, when you were ceremonially unclean, that's in Leviticus 22.2. All of these relate to ways in which they would blaspheme the name of God. Now, in Numbers 14.11, which is an important passage, we have the circumstance of the Israelites who have come out of Egypt. They have gone to Mount Sinai where they initially observed uh, they had observed Passover just before they left. They spent a year at Mount Sinai. The last thing they did was to observe uh, the first free Passover, the first free Seder. Then they went into the uh, desert of Sinai, headed north to the land of Canaan that God was going to give to them, and they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, Moses chose 12 spies to go into the land, And their purpose wasn't to see if they could conquer the Canaanites, but just to do a recon of the land. When they came back, ten of the spies misunderstood, misinterpreted the word of God, which is what commonly happens, and they said, oh, we can't do this. No, God didn't send them up there to see if they could do it. He had already told them they could do it. He would give give the land of Canaan to them, but they misinterpreted, and they came back, and they whined, and they... Uh, groaned, and they said, we can't do it, there's too many people, there are giants in the land, and they live in these big walled cities, there's no way we can do it, let's all go back to Egypt. And so this was an act of rebellion against God, and they wanted to stone Caleb and Joshua because they were the only two of the spies who said, no, God's given us this land, we just have to trust him, and we can take it. So like many people, when somebody starts emphasizing what the Bible says, they want to react and just kill them and get them out of the way because they don't want to hear what God has to say. That's the context for Numbers 14.11. And then the Lord intervenes and speaks to Moses and says, how long will this people spurn, that's our word na'at, spurn, which means revile or reject or blaspheme. How long will these people blaspheme? That's what they're doing. They're rebelling against God. They're refusing to trust God. And that comes under this category of reviling God or blaspheming God. And God says, how long will they not believe in me? Notice a parallel. Not believing in God is parallel to na'at's. So that is a form of blasphemy, is to not believe in God. He goes on, How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And then God says, Because of this, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. This is the judgment that God was going to bring upon that generation, not in eternity, but in time. Over the next 40 years, God was going to judge them because of their blasphemy. The point that I am making is blasphemy against God was a temporal sin that was punished in time, in history, in the Old Testament. It's not talking about an eternal judgment type of situation. Then in verse... uh, uh, 23, he says, They certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me, Naats again, uh, rejected me see it. There are temporal consequences for rejecting the, uh, the provision of God. So what, what we see here is, first of all, that in the Old Testament, Israel's disobedience to God, their idolatry, their spiritual rebellion, and their rejection of God's signs and miracles is identified as blasphemy, and it's the cause of divine judgment in time in the Old Testament. In the same way, we see that Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah, 
that comes to a head here in Matthew chapter 12, their rejection of Christ's miracles and then attributing his power to the power of Satan, his power which was from the God the Holy Spirit, and attributing them to the power of Satan was the basis and, is, and became the basis for another national condemnation and judgment from God. The context is not talking about individual sins or getting eternal life by trusting in God. So we come to verse 22 now. And one was brought to him who was demon-possessed. He is blind and he's mute. He can't see and he can't talk. And uh, Jesus heals him. What we see here is that Christ is delivering this individual from bondage to Satan. He removes his blindness. He removes his inability to speak. And this is a clear validation of his messianic credentials. Under uh, rabbinic thought, only the Messiah would be able to uh, deliver a demon-possessed man like this. No one else could do it in this manner. No one could bring sight to a blind man but the Messiah. So Jesus' miracle of delivering this demon-possessed man, restoring his sight, restoring his speech, goes beyond anything that Jewish exorcists would do in delivering somebody uh, from demon possession. Now, that's important because this is going to play into uh, Jesus' uh, explanations in just a minute. Now, this man represents the spiritual state of Israel. They were spiritually blind. They were refusing to accept the truth of what the Old Testament predicted with regard to the Messiah, and they were refusing to tell people to go out among the nations and to tell people about the glories of God. And so they were no longer, they were not fulfilling the mission that God had called Israel to in Exodus 4.19, that they were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a priest nation among all the other nations, and they had failed in their responsibility. Uh, Israel had been deceived by Satan, they'd been blinded by Satan, and as a result, they failed to proclaim God to the nations. Now, the mute man immediately speaks, he immediately is able to see, and this is what Jesus is doing is giving a little object lesson that this is what he, as the Messiah, wanted to do for Israel. He wanted to give them sight so that they would be able to finally fulfill the mission of God in proclaiming the grace of God uh, and the excellencies of God to the nations. By the way, this is exactly what he has done for us. He has delivered us from the domain of Satan and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son so that we have new life. We can see uh, spiritually, and we are able to proclaim the glories of God. Then in verse 23, the people respond, and they say, they said, could this be the son of David? Now, we miss some of the impact here in the Greek. The Greek actually uh, expresses it in sort of a negative way, but the terms amazed and said are both stated in to be in the imperfect tense. What Matthew is saying is they were just so amazed that they continued to be amazed again and again. The imperfect tense in Greek expresses continual action. They continue to be amazed, and they continue to talk about it. They continue to say this, ask this question, could this be the Son of God? Now, the way it is framed in the Greek, it uses a... There are two different words expressing negatives or expressing no in the Greek, and this is a one that uh, expects a negative answer. So basically what they are saying is, this couldn't be the Son of David, could it? 
And by asking that question, it really angers the, the Pharisees. They've already reached the boiling point. Now they're going to get a lot hotter because the, it indicates that the people are beginning to think that, that what else would the Messiah do? What else could he do? I mean, Jesus here is, is, is performing all of these, these miracles. He's giving sight to the blind. He's delivering the demon possessed. What more could we expect the Messiah to do? And the Pharisees don't have an answer. And so the only thing they can do is to impugn the power of Jesus, and they say that he doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul was a a term of derision that they had given to Baal, one of the gods of the Phoenicians. And he is also, it's also a play on words for the god of dung, the, the lord of the flies, and so they had given this term of derision to Satan. And so they're basically saying that, that, <clears throat> that Jesus is performing his miracles by the power of the devil. Now, there's one thing you really don't do if you're going to avoid blasphemy. And that is to say that, that God is really the devil and to accuse Jesus of doing everything by the devil. Once you do that, then you are in trouble. What we've seen from the Old Testament is that this is an example of the same kind of thinking that characterized the Israelites in the Old Testament for which they were taken out of the land in 722 and in 586 B.C. Now, what Jesus says here when we look at at, uh, his response... Uh, later on, he says that you can reject him, you can uh, uh, ignore his claims to be uh, to be the Messiah. You can do all of these different things, but if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, then this won't be forgiven you. And this is what he says, skip down to verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. So if somebody had ridiculed him or said something against him while he is uh, while he was on the earth, it would be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, what does that mean, in this age or the age to come? Jesus is in the age of Israel. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's still under the dispensation of the Mosaic Law and the transitional dispensation of the time of the Messiah. It is before the cross, so that this age that he is talking about is this age, this time when the kingdom is being offered to you. What's the age to come? If you say church age, you're wrong. The age to come wasn't the church age because it hadn't even been announced yet. Church age doesn't get announced for two or three more chapters. So the age to come is the age of the Messiah, the age of the kingdom that the Messiah will bring. It is yet future. It's what we refer to as the millennial kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is there is this significant sin, this sin of blasphemy like what we saw in the Old Testament that brings the death penalty. It's bringing the death penalty to the nation Israel. He's announcing judgment at this time, and the death penalty was brought by God in AD 70 when the second temple was destroyed, just as God brought the death penalty to the northern kingdom in 722 and to the southern kingdom in 586 when the first temple was, was destroyed. And so Jesus is saying that and, and that this won't be forgiven. And in the millennial kingdom, we know that one of the uh, few 
reasons a person will die in the kingdom because Isaiah says that they will live to be a thousand years. If they, if someone were to die at the age of a hundred, they would be thought to have died as an infant. Uh, because everyone will be expected to live throughout the entire millennial kingdom. But those who commit these capital crimes, murder, adultery, blasphemy against God, they will be guilty of, 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 uh, of punishment. And so Jesus then gives two answers to their, their question, two illustrations to show that they're illogical and that they are irrational. The first one appeals to logic. He says, gives the principle in verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. You know, the the only people who manage to successfully uh, fight against each other and still survive are the church, right? And maybe the Houston Texans. But anyway... Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. That's the principle. You can't have this kind of division and win the ball game. So if Satan is casting out Satan by his own power, you can't win the ball game. This is illogical. It's irrational. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And then Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, this is another argument then who are your Jewish exorcists casting out demons? You're, it, it, it's, I'm doing something greater. They never, they never healed a blind man. They never cast out a demon that restored speech to someone. I'm doing something greater than what they are doing, and yet you're saying they're doing it by their power. I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebul. That's illogical and irrational to make that sort of claim. So your your argument falls apart at multiple levels. And in verse 28, he says, if I cast out demons. See, he's emphasizing himself, his own role, that this is indicative of who he is as Messiah. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then this is evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not that it has been inaugurated, but that in the presence of the king, the kingdom is being offered to them, and it is now up to them to respond and accept it. And then he gives another illustration. I'll come back and hit this in a little more detail next week, but I want to just quickly go past it uh, this morning. How can one enter a strong man's house? The strong man's house, the house is Israel. The strong man was Satan. Satan had had control over Israel and had brought spiritual blindness to Israel. And he has said, how can someone enter? He's the one as the king, as the creator who is entering in to the strong man's house. He's coming into Israel. He is the one who is giving them the opportunity to become free of the spiritual oppression of Satan. And he says... How can you enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So Jesus is showing that he is restraining the power of Satan by casting out these demons during his uh, first coming. And says, and then he says, and this is the challenge to the people of that generation as well as to us, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. 
Jesus says, you're either on my side or you're on the devil's side. There's no intermediate ground. You can't say, well, I'm going to trust Christ and then just go hide and take care of my business and live my life the way I want to. Jesus says, here's the issue. If you're, if you trust in me and you're a believer, then you're either totally for me or you're totally against me. There's no middle ground. Which side are you going to be on? Uh, it's time to take care of business and line up on the right side and be involved in serving the Lord. It doesn't matter what your purpose in life is in terms of your secular occupation, in terms of the fact that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your response is to get involved with God's plan and purpose. And God's plan and purpose during the church age is to grow to spiritual maturity, which means that's got to be a priority to your life above and beyond anything else that you do. That means you've got to be involved studying the Word, applying the Word, uh, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and pursuing spiritual maturity, but not as an end in and of itself, as an end in order to serve the Lord both in the local church as well as outside of the local church where you are involved in the lives of people ministering the Word of God through evangelism as well as through, uh, through encouragement. And so this is what Jesus ends with. There is a challenge here. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be completely on the Lord's side or not? One or the other. You're either for him or you are against him. And it's in that context he makes this statement. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. In other words, this blasphemy against the Spirit is the rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of the king, the rejection of the offer of the king to Israel, and therefore it is a unique sin that took place only at that time and is specifically in relation to the national response of Israel to Jesus' offer of the kingdom. And he says this will not be forgiven men. The uh, the, the consequence of your rejection is irrevocable, and just as God announced judgment upon Israel, the northern kingdom, and they were later taken out in 722, and then he announced through Isaiah and others the judgment against the southern kingdom, and they were taken out in 586, this is the end, this is the final straw, and judgment is coming. It is irrevocable. So, when we look at this, we have to recognize that in the Bible, the Bible talks about forgiveness in two categories. First, there's eternal forgiveness related to our eternal destiny. That eternal forgiveness is offered to all. Jesus died for every sin, right? That includes the sin of unbelief if it's every sin. That includes blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He died for every sin. Period. That's what the Scripture says, as I'll close with in just a second. Eternal forgiveness has to do with eternal life. He's not talking about eternal forgiveness in this passage. He's talking about temporal forgiveness in relation to a temporal consequence and a temporal sin. That's the second category, temporal forgiveness, which has divine judgment in history in view. Let me close with a reminder of this passage. In Colossians 2.13, Paul says, you, and these words in brackets clarify the force of the participles in this passage. You, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We've studied that phrase. It means you, we were all dead, at, born spiritually dead. We're born dead in our sins. When we were dead, at that time when we are spiritually dead, he has made us alive together with him. When, when we trust in Christ, at that point we're regenerated. 
He made us alive together with him because he could regenerate you when you trusted in Christ right here, right now. He makes you alive because he's already forgiven you of all trespasses. Now, when did that happen? The next verse makes it clear. He did it when he wiped out the certificate of debt or the handwriting of requirements that was against us. We had an indictment against us. And when did he wipe that out? Did he wipe it out when you believed? Not what the verse says. The verse says he took it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. It was a historical event. There are three things that are the spiritual problem for every person. Number one is we're under condemnation from Adam's original sin. We're we're born spiritually dead. The second problem is that we lack life because we were born spiritually dead. We continue to be spiritually dead. We lack life. The third is we lack righteousness. There's only one way to see God, and that is to have righteousness. Isaiah says in the Old Testament, all... Uh, 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 that, that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Nobody escapes. We're all under condemnation. And so what happened is that at the cross, God put the penalty upon Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah says. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was paid for at the cross. So that number one problem, the judicial problem, was paid for at the cross, but but that doesn't automatically save anybody. You still have two problems. You are spiritually dead, and you are unrighteous. What solves that problem? When we trust in Christ, we are immediately born again. We are given new life, Number two, God imputes or credits to us righteousness, just like he did with Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham was uh, justified by faith. God credited him with righteousness in uh, Genesis 15:6, And God imputed to him righteousness because of his faith, faith alone in the promise of God for deliverance. For us, that promise is specific in Jesus who has paid the penalty for sin. So, Matthew 12 isn't talking about the fact that you can do something that negates your salvation. It's not talking about the fact that you can do something that makes you unsavable. It is talking about the fact that there was an important decision for the nation Israel, and that was whether or not to accept Jesus as the Messiah. When they rejected him, they got the same punishment that they got in 722 and 586, was because of blasphemy, they were going to be taken out of the land and come under judgment. But they could still be saved. And many of those Pharisees that were there that day ended up, before they died, trusting in Jesus as Messiah. Men like uh, Joseph of Arimathea, men like Nicodemus, and numerous others trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And that is the issue that determines eternal life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to examine this passage, to come to an understanding that that there are temporal consequences for temporal failure, for sin, for blasphemy, but that these do not affect our eternal destiny because sin was paid for by Christ on the cross as that eternal sacrifice, the the fulfillment of that imagery seen in the Old Testament where the the two goats are taken and one receives the, uh, the, the sin and is sacrificed and put to death, and the other goat is taken out uh, to Azazel, to the wilderness, to be uh, released 
indicating the complete uh, forgiveness and release of sin for the nation. That occurred each year on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. Father, we, we recognize that it is only your provision that pr- provides salvation for sin, and that is only by a sacrifice that has eternal value, which was what was accomplished by Christ upon the cross. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make this both sure and certain by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the only issue. It doesn't matter what we've done or what we haven't done. Whatever sins are there, whatever uh, whatever things that we may be ashamed of, none of those things matter. The only thing that matters is believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and at that instant we are uh, regenerated, we are made new creatures in Christ, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and we are declared just before you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what Jesus has said here, that it is we are either fully on his side or we are against him, and we need to make sure that we have our focus in our lives on serving the Lord completely and totally. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.